Welcome to another episode of Obiter Dicta, Bloomsbury Professionals' podcast on all things law and tax, with me, Rachel Sherlock, and also Gronya McMahon. Today we are bringing you part one of an interview with Michael Boylan, author of Medical Negligence Litigation. A highly regarded practitioner in the area and author, we decided to split the interview into two parts because it was so insightful. The second part will be released in October. In this episode, Michael gives us his views on modular trials, discusses the importance of early disclosure with tips for practitioners, and he also explains why medics are leaving themselves open to negligence claims. We hope you enjoy it. Michael, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Congratulations on the new edition of your book. Can you tell us a bit about it? Well, thanks very much, uh, Rachel. Yeah, well, I was asked to, I did the first edition of this uh, in 2015, 2016. And you guys approached me uh, last year to ask would I do a second edition. Uh, So I thought, oh, yeah, well, that can't be too difficult. I've done the first edition. broken the back of it. But actually, uh, it was a much bigger task than I originally thought. There's been a lot of water under the bridge in the last five, six, seven years, a lot of a lot of jurisprudence, a lot of statutory instruments, legislation. Um, so it was a bigger task than I thought. But um, I suppose having done it, I feel virtuous having finished it. So I'm happy to have done it. Yeah, that's always the way, a bigger task than you think. And did you enjoy the writing process? Uh, I'd love to say I did. <laughs> I, I found it um, a challenge uh, with all the other, you know, my general everyday work, a very, very busy period in the practice with lots of, of, of cases. And um, yeah, we it was a challenge, but it got done and I was assisted greatly by a very clever solicitor, Laura Croke, who helped me with uh, a good deal of the uh, research. But no, I, I enjoyed actually learning. I have to say, I'm perhaps a bit of an anorak. I, I did enjoy when I had done um, the extra knowledge that you gain from doing it. It really does keep you up to date, you know. Michael, it sounds like um, it's going to be an excellent um, publication. Can we talk now a little bit about the law? And there has, as you said, been some developments since the last edition. But statutory instrument 391 of 1998 changed the rules regarding the disclosure of expert evidence. For our listeners, could you maybe um, explain this for us? Okay, well, I'm I'm old enough to remember the good old days of, of trial by ambush. And it may... Um, for lawyers who have qualified in the last 20 years, it might seem absolutely extraordinary. But back in the day, for example, the, the leading landmark case of Dunn in the National Maternity Hospital, there was no disclosure of expert evidence in that case. There were no, the other side didn't know what the experts for the opposing party were going to say or their opinions. And it was literally only uh, as cross-examination began that you knew what your opposing party's evidence and case was going to be. That changed in, in 1998. There was the introduction of that statutory instrument, which required that uh, each party had to identify the witnesses that they intended to call, the expert witnesses that they intended to call at the trial, 
and to give your opponent copies of their opinions, their reports in advance of the trial. Now, the rule says that the report should be disclosed. Each party should simultaneously disclose their reports 30 days after service of notice of trial. Now, that 30 days after service of notice of trial is almost invariably ignored and um, doesn't happen. But what does happen is a week or two before the trial is due to commence, there is an exchange of expert opinions on both sides so that you should know what the other uh, side's expert is going to say and to the views that they're going to express. That is what should happen, but unfortunately it doesn't always happen. So uh, what happens is that there is... Uh, foot dragging. Um, and I have to say, I know I'm speaking as a plaintiff lawyer, but I would say, uh, without fear of contradiction, that 90% of the default occurs on the defense side and that the uh, defendant is not ready to exchange their expert evidence or there is incomplete exchange and you can be starting a trial um, and still waiting for expert opinion to come from the defense side. So that has caused problems, but it's much better than it was uh, before the statutory instrument was introduced. There's a recent Court of Appeal decision in a case of O'Flynn versus the HSE handed down just this year, which I hope is going to clear up a good deal of the mischief that uh, has occurred and continues to occur Uh, in the policing of this statutory instrument. So that case, in fact, it was uh, arising from one of the cervical check cases um, where uh, there had been a misreading of a smear test. And in that case, there was an exchange of, of expert opinion was mooted a few weeks before the trial was due to commence, or maybe a month before the trial was due to commence. But the defendant served a schedule which was effectively an empty schedule which just said report awaited and that they reserved the right to call uh, additional expert evidence uh, at the trial and they demand the defendants demanded that the plaintiff hand over their expert reports and the plaintiffs refused the defendant brought an application to court to get the court to direct that the plaintiffs hand over their expert opinion. And the court refused to grant the defendant that application. And effectively, the court decided that it would be unjust and prejudicial to the plaintiff to hand over all of their expert opinions with the risk that the defendant would then go and secure their own expert um, reports from their own panel of experts, uh, having seen the plaintiff's cards, so to speak. And the Court of Appeal handed down some useful guidance to practitioners, uh, which hopefully cleared it all up. And basically in a situation where the uh, defendant serves what we would call an empty schedule listing no witnesses, expert witnesses on it, but reserving the right to call such witnesses at a later stage. 
the court says once there has been an exchange of expert evidence and once the plaintiff has handed over their expert reports and if the defendant has given an assurance that they don't intend to call experts of that particular type and they subsequently change their mind and decide they want to call such experts, they cannot do so unless the court gives them permission to do so and the court is satisfied that that would be in the interest of justice. So it's tightened it up a good deal, hopefully, and it will be policed a bit better. Michael, that's really useful. Um, You know, as a seasoned practitioner yourself, would you have any advice to plaintiff solicitors who often come across the difficulty of trying to obtain disclosure pre-trial and to, you know, to navigate all of this, to try and enforce maybe, I mean, constantly going in and out with motions but is have you would you have any tips on that well in fact that's the 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 only remedy that you do have is to uh, bring an application to the court well in advance of the trial so that you're not at uh, at the trial what can happen to you is with a last minute disclosure on the eve of the trial you can find yourself racing around the place and trying to urgently instruct your own experts with the other side's reports and ask your own experts for their views at the last minute and it can create all sorts of logistical difficulties for you Um, and my advice would be don't allow that to happen it adds hugely to your stress levels and it can really um, uh, cause you to sleepless nights unnecessarily so so bring an bring an application to the court early um, by way of motion, seeking to uh, compel the defendants to uh, disclose their expert opinions, or seeking a declaration prohibiting the defendant from calling expert evidence because of their failure to comply with the uh, with the rules of court and the statutory instrument. That would be my tip to to practitioners. Thanks so much for that, Michael. That was really helpful. Can I move now to another question? Could you explain lump sum damages and the discount rate with Russell v. HSE having been the standard since 2015, but then there was a public consultation on the same? Right. Well, look, I could I could do a separate podcast on this for an hour and or two, <laughs> and um, I I don't want to put the listeners asleep and bore them. But if I suppose if I can keep them awake by saying that there's an awful lot of money involved in this, depending on what assumption the court makes about the uh, discount rate or the real rate of return. So not to uh, this is really in the realm of economics and where economics, I suppose the economic textbook meets the tort textbook. The court has to make an assumption about how much the lump sum will earn. If, if the lump sum is designed to compensate uh, an, a seriously injured plaintiff for lifetime care needs, and if those care needs aren't going to arise for a number of decades, and the money will be uh, in a bank account uh, or in, a, in an investment fund, how much will that fund uh, generate in terms of interest earned, the court has to make an assumption as to how much uh, money can be earned before it has to be paid out in wages to carers or 
for medical care. As a result of Russell and the Russell case, the court was tasked with deciding whether the previous convention of uh, actuaries of assuming that the lump sum could yield 3% above inflation, whether that was realistic or not. And the court in Russell decided that that was wholly unrealistic. And in view of the then prevailing economic circumstances, uh, the assumption should be made that if the plaintiff was to invest the lump sum in a risk-free basket of investments, now risk-free, uh, that it could generate a, a, an annual rate of return of one and a half percent, one percent or one and a half percent above inflation. And that's what the court decided in 2015 based on the then prevailing economic circumstances. But the, the overriding principle was that the plaintiff should not be required to, to invest in risky assets, should be, um, not be like Warren Buffett or any, any sort of hedge fund investor, but should be able to inv invest the lump sum in completely risk-free assets. In investing in risk-free assets, you have to be willing to take less of a, of an interest rate, less of a, of a return on your money. So that's why in Russell, the court decided 1% was appropriate. Now, the current circumstances in 2022 are radically different. And the markets, and if you talk to economists and investment advisors, they will tell you that to invest your money risk-free in the markets now, you will not get a positive real rate of return. You will get negative. And it's only till very recently the banks have been charging you money to keep your money in, in, in a bank account. They've been charging you money and you've been getting a negative return. So likewise, if you invest the lump sum with an investment advisor in in bonds, in risk-free government bonds, you are, you're going to get a negative real rate of return. And even with the change in interest rates, which have occurred over the last number of months, you've got to bear in mind that even with interest rates increasing, the rate of inflation has, is 10% currently. So you're into a situation where in real terms, uh, if inflation is is running at ten percent, and if you're getting three percent rate of return on your money, really in real terms you're losing seven percent. So the court now, if if the court was to reassess the uh, appropriate real rate of return to uh, apply to lump sum damages, and if the court was to assume to continue to assume that the plaintiff shouldn't be re required to put the money in risky assets, the court would have to assume that there would be an, a negative uh, real rate of return. And that's what's happened in um, in the UK, in, in England and in uh, Scotland, and indeed in Northern Ireland. Currently in Northern Ireland, the assumed rate of return on lump sum damages 
is minus 1.75%. So that's um, more than a a 3% differential between Belfast damages uh, um, and, and Dublin damages insofar as you're talking about catastrophically injured plaintiffs. It makes a massive difference to the uh, lump sum award. And just to give you an idea, um, a case I was involved in in November last, it's referred to in the book, it was ultimately settled for 30 million euros. Now, because the argument was put forward that there should be a negative real rate of return applied by the court, and to buy off that risk, the defendants had to settle the case, and we recommended settlement of the case for 30 million euros. But we did inform the court that um, if the court was to apply the Russell real rate of return a positive real rate of return assumption, the award would have been around 18 million, but instead it was 30 million using a negative real rate of return assumption. Now, the court didn't make a judgment in that case, but that was a settlement approved by the court. But it gives you a good idea, it gives the listeners a good idea about the difference in in terms of damages that uh, tweaking or or adjusting the real rate of return uh, makes. Now, um, you mentioned a review. There is a review going on at the moment by the Department of, of the Minister for Justice. The Minister is looking at specifying a, a rate um, under the 2004 Act. I can't remember the section. I think it's Section 24 from memory. But the 2004 Act gives give the Minister the power to, to legislate and to specify a rate that the court should apply but um that hasn't happened yet and um the minister is looking at potentially requiring the plaintiff to take risk risks on on investing the damages which would be a radical departure from the the common law but the consultation process is still going on Michael, that's really interesting. Um, and thank you for, because we were about to ask you about the UK rate, but you've you've covered that. Could we talk about modular trials and what's your view on them in terms of cost and time? Well, yes, there's been a spate of applications um, in recent months by defendants uh, for modular trials, which basically means that the, the uh, defendant, uh, particularly if, if a case is going to take three or four weeks, to deal with all issues, to deal with liability and to deal with quantum issues, maybe life expectancy issues. They've asked um, the court to um, have a modular trial to deal uh, in the first instance with liability issues only. So to deal with breach of duty um, and the negligence issue, so to speak, and to deal with causation. And then if the plaintiff succeeds on those issues to then at a later stage go on to deal with quantum, that has been the subject of a number of of recent uh, applications. The court um, has, there's been some granted and others not. Um, In the most recent one I was involved in, um, a case of um, Harmon involving a case uh, of Cordoaquina syndrome where the plaintiff developed Cordoaquina syndrome on the eve of trial, about two weeks before the trial, the defendants applied 
to have a modular trial um, and to separate out the issue of the issues of, of, of breach of duty causation uh, uh, to be dealt with in one m- uh, module and then quantum to be dealt with later. The court refused that application. The court was not satisfied that there would, in fact, be a saving of time. The overriding principle, uh, if if the court is going to grant such an application, would be that it would be uh, a more efficient use of court time and save court time and save expense. But unless the court can be satisfied that that is, in fact, going to happen, the court is going to take a jaundiced view of it and is not going to allow it. And in that case that I've just described of Cordo Quina, the, there was going to be an overlap of witnesses between the liability issue and the quantum issue. And the same witnesses were going to have to give evidence or four or five of the same witnesses were going to have to give evidence in both modules. And the court wasn't satisfied that at the end of the day, there was going to be a saving of court time. And indeed, Judge Coffey endorsed uh, a view or a a dicta of uh, Charlton Jay. And he said that, you know, sometimes to have a modular trial can tear at the very fabric of what the court uh, has to litigate uh, in the case if they split the trial up in that way. So, you know, I must say, speaking with my plaintiff patient hat on, I am against them in general terms because it's difficult enough for a plaintiff to have the wherewithal and the financial wherewithal to face one trial and mount one trial rather than having to face it a second time and the potential delay involved in it. So that would be my view on it. But as I say, the, the court will grant it if it's satisfied that it will save time and expense. Thanks, Michael. That's been really useful. I know that you have some views on the 2020 expert group report, which was set up to review the law of torts and the current systems for management of clinical negligence claims. And there was a number of recommendations uh, made in that report. I wonder, could we get your views on that report? If you're talking about the the report of Judge Meenan, um, in general terms, you know, the reports have come up with, there's a common theme throughout all of them that clinical negligence trials take too long and they're too expensive. And that the problem is that the real issues to be litigated in the case uh, are, are not clear and uh, are not out on the table early enough. And the reports all recommend, and I would endorse it strongly, that there should be a much, much uh, earlier exchange of records in the first instance and disclosure of records and disclosure of hospital protocols and disclosure of factual statements which have been made by both sides. And if if that happens at a much earlier stage, it, it will enhance the prospects of earlier settlement of cases because what's happening uh, far too often is that cases which should be settled much much earlier are not being settled until you know the the day of trial um, and at which stage huge huge resources have been applied and massive expense has occurred 
and an awful lot of time has has been wasted. So I, I must say I would endorse that very, very strongly. It's happened in 1996 in the UK as a result of the Lord Wolf uh, reforms. And we've talked about it here for the last, what, 20 odd, 25 years, and it, it hasn't happened. And there's been report after report recommending that there should be pre-action protocols to, to enhance the exchange of factual evidence at an earlier stage and to promote settlement. But it hasn't happened. It should happen. Thanks very much for all of that. That's, that's great insight. I wanted to ask about informed consent claims. How <coughs> difficult are they to win? In a word, difficult. Um, they don't have a good <laughs> track record. Um, they don't have a good track record. If you go back to Walsh and, and the Family Planning Clinic, um, uh, Fitzpatrick and White, Bolton versus BlackRock, um, Gagan and, and Harris, I think I'm correct in saying in each one of those, uh, the plaintiff lost. And in most of them, if not all of them, um, the plaintiff was able to establish that there was a lack of informed consent in the sense that they were not given uh, the information that they ought to have been given to enable them to make a properly, fully informed choice the, the rock upon which all these cases uh, perished was causation. So they couldn't establish, the patient couldn't establish that if they had been given the warning and the advice um, and the information that they ought to have been given, it would have changed their mind and they wouldn't have had, they wouldn't have proceeded with the treatment in any event. So that is often the, the big problem. Uh, with these cases to, to prove to the satisfaction of the court that you, that the patient would not have proceeded with the treatment. And of course, the, the, the court is often very skeptical of an argument that using 2020 retrospective vision that, um, oh, if I'd have known what the outcome would, would have been, I wouldn't have had the treatment. Well, that's no use use at all. You've got to show that prospectively, if you'd have had this information, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have taken the risk. It's it's very difficult to 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 meet that standard. Now, that's not to say that I haven't had success in 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 cases in specific cases where I have taken them and. I have succeeded, and I am aware that doctors get get very, very agitated um, when the paperwork in relation to consent uh, is is less than to be desired. And I often feel actually that doctors are leaving themselves wide open to claims because often you have the situation where even now the consent forms are are secured from the patient on the day of surgery by the senior house officer um, or perhaps the registrar and not the surgeon themselves and that the senior house officer uh, will not have have explained the risks and not have recorded the risks adequately and the consent forms themselves are often deficient but 
leaving all that aside to one side, the causation point is often the Achilles heel for, for patients um, and they are difficult. Could we talk maybe a bit about mediation versus traditional settlement meetings and what are the advantages and disadvantages of them? Okay, well, again, at the risk of sound, sounding a bit like a dinosaur, um, I practiced for 30 years when without mediation being uh, a feature of the landscape and we were able to settle cases with with round table meetings or at law library settlement negotiations directly between uh, both parties lawyers but that's not to say there isn't a place for for mediation in clinical negligence cases there certainly is and absolutely in complex cases uh, a good mediator who engages with the issues and uh, is willing to take the time to point out the the pros and cons, strengths and weaknesses, and explore them and try to um, find common ground, that that isn't very helpful. Uh, and it can be helpful. So the only problem I have with the current situation with me- mediation that exists is that it takes place far too late in the process, that... Um, A mediator is appointed in the week in the run-up to trial that a suggestion is made by the defendants that uh, there should be mediation a week before the trial. And up till then, there's been a total shutout and a total denial of responsibility and a willingness to engage or to discuss settlement or narrowing the issues. And it, it takes place as a substitute for a settlement discussion a week before the trial or days before the trial and really no savings occur and it can be, dare I say it in one sense, a a distraction because in the run-up to a trial, in the days before a trial, you're really concentrating and make sure you've got all your ducks in a row and all your proofs in order and you're ready to go with the trial. And um, if you're then sort of sidetracked for a, a day or so, so into mediation. I won't say it's a distraction, but it's a worry that if you don't settle the case, you, you're, you're, again, you're, you've wasted time that you really want to be concentrating on making sure your revision is right and you're, you've got all your homework done for the trial. So that's, that's, that would be my take on it. It takes place far too late. Thanks to Michael Boylan for joining us on the podcast and you can purchase his new book, Medical Negligence Litigation on bloomsburyprofessional.com. It's also available to subscribers of Irish Medical Law on Bloomsbury Professional online. Until next time, 